The following program may contain adult content. Listener discretion is advised. Alright, everybody. Please excuse my voice. I barely have any, so we're about to get it started for you. There's a few uh, kid friendly ghost stories. These are true stories based on submissions from the BuzzFeed Unsolved Network audience. These are their encounters. One night when I was in 7th grade, I had two friends sleeping over, and we were in my basement. My brother, who was around 7 at the time, had bought himself a new Furby and got bored of it after a few weeks. Then it sat untouched in the basement closet. As you may know, Furbies sometimes begin to talk when they are moved, yet they only speak gibberish, not English. This night, it was around 4am, and we had all the lights out, and it was silent. We were laying down to go to bed, and out of nowhere, we hear this Furby's voice say, Come play with me. And then it laughed. At the time, I didn't know it didn't speak English, so we wrote it off and went to bed. To my horror, in the morning when I checked on it, not only does it not speak English, it also had no batteries. I was a freshman in college in the Philippines. It was late at night, and my friends and I were on our way home after watching a play at one of the campus theaters. As we were nearing the College of Education building, I looked up to the sky and saw a woman jump from the topmost floor. I told my friends and we ran over to the front lawn of the building to help the woman. But when we got there, she was gone. The guard came rushing over to us because I was so loud about it. My friends didn't see her because I was the only one who felt the urge to look up. The guard helped calm me down from nearest area, then told me that I must have seen the ghost of a woman who had jumped to her death from that building years ago because it was the anniversary of her death. In 2015, I went on a trip to DC for the 4th of July with my family. This was our second trip to DC, so we decided to take the last day of our trip, the 4th of July, to go visit Mount Vernon, George Washington's estate in Virginia. It was the middle of the day, scorching hot, and there was absolutely no air conditioning in the house, aside from a few fans placed sparingly. I'm a huge history buff, so I was very excited about touring the home and knew a lot about George Washington and his estate previously. So I knew that he passed away in his bedroom in 1799, but that's definitely not what I was thinking about when our tour guide led our group upstairs to see that bedroom. His bedroom had a lot of really delicate artifacts in it, so we weren't allowed to go inside, and there were little plastic barriers preventing us from doing so, but you could stick your head into the room and look around. For some reason, I was the only one in the group who decided to take a look. When I stuck my head into the room, I was immediately struck by how absolutely freezing cold it was in there, and I don't mean that there was a light breeze. It was as if I had stuck the upper half of my body into a walk-in freezer. I was confused by this because there didn't seem to be any air conditioning in the room, so I looked around to try to see if there was any fan or AC unit that I just wasn't noticing, but I didn't see one. I decided to take my head out of the room and ask our tour guide why it was so cold in there, but then I realized that I couldn't move. I was paralyzed from the waist up. Every part of my body that was in the room was completely stuck in place. I struggled to pull myself out, but couldn't. I started to panic and tried to open my mouth to call for help, but when I opened my mouth, no sound came out. All of a sudden, from the other side of the room, where there was a little piece of furniture, a mirror, and a water basin, probably where Washington washed his face and shaved in the morning, I felt what I can describe as nothing other than a pair of eyes staring at me, almost like the sensation of someone staring at you while you sleep. I didn't see a figure or anything, but I felt this huge and intimidating presence walk towards me and stare me down. It was horrifying, and I physically could not tell you how much time passed in that moment, because it really felt like it could have been an hour, but I guess it was only a few seconds. After a while, I finally broke free from my paralysis and almost fell backwards onto my butt. My mom asked me what was wrong, and I told her that I wanted to leave. She didn't believe me when I told her the story later, but it still scares me to this day.
when I was around eight or nine years old, my mom told me to go to bed early on a summer night. So I threw a fit and began screaming at my mom, I hate you. My mom always told me never to go to bed angry because the devil can possess you and steal you. After slamming my bedroom door shut, I turned off the lights and laid down. It was near midnight and I was still angry. Suddenly, I heard tapping by my door. I had chills run up my arms. Then I heard a voice call to me. It sounded like my brother's voice, but he was calling me a nickname my mom used for me. I figured it was my brother, so I started yelling at him to go away. The voice taunted me with the nickname until my mom ran into the room and turned on the lights. What are you yelling at? I sat up and noticed she was the only person in my room. I told her my brother came into my room and started calling my name. She looked pale. Your brother is sound asleep in my room. It was exactly 12 a.m. on the clock when my mom walked into my room, and it was freezing even though my window was closed and the AC was turned off. There was something in my room that night. And to this day, nobody in my family understands what happened. All I know is that I'll never go to bed angry ever again. Last year, I went to the coast of Rhode Island for my cousin's wedding. We were just a few miles from the Lizzie Borden house. We get to the wedding venue, and it's this old, big, creepy-looking mansion. Immediately, my spooky senses were tingling. I made a few offhanded comments about how it seemed like this would be a place that was haunted, but within a few minutes, I was distracted by the festivities, and all thoughts of ghosts escaped my mind. The wedding was out behind the mansion, where we could see the water, so everyone had moved from inside to the back lawn. All afternoon, my cousin and my aunts had me grab things for them. Eventually, one of them asked me to get a hair clip she had left in the dressing room area. The dressing room area was in the upstairs part of the mansion. Only people in the wedding party were allowed access up there. As I ascended the red velvet spiral staircase, the spooky feeling started coming back to me. Suddenly, I felt like every portrait on the walls were watching my every move. As I went into the dressing room, I decided I would just grab the hair clip and run. I walked to the large table and found the clip. As I was getting ready to run out of the room, I saw my reflection in the mirror on the other side of the room. My hair had gotten all messed up from running around, so I stopped to fix it. As I was standing facing the mirror with my back to the open door of the room, I saw what looked like the form of a person standing in the door just over my shoulder. Frozen, I stare at the white figure of a person in the mirror for a few seconds. Quickly regaining my composure, I turned around and looked at the door. No one was there. I swear that I had just seen an old white gentleman. I couldn't make out the clothes he was wearing, but I definitely knew that no one in the wedding party looked like him, since we are an Asian family. So if it was a random guest, they wouldn't have been allowed to go upstairs where I was. While I was standing, looking around in confusion and mild fear, the door to the bathroom began shaking and banging, like someone was locked in there and they were trying to get out, thinking it was just a bridesmaid that was stuck in the bathroom. Most doors were creaky and jammed frequently. I went and easily opened the door. No one was inside the small bathroom. Scared out of my wits, I made a run for it. In my fancy dress and six-inch heels, I ran back down the red velvet spiral stairs and didn't look back until I was outside. Later that night, the bride's hairstylist told me he saw the same apparition of a man just minutes before I did. Several years ago, I was deeply involved in amateur ghost hunting. A friend at the time told me her home was in fact haunted, and I jumped at the chance to tackle the challenge. We first conducted an EVP session in the master bedroom where my friend's grandparents died. After asking questions like, do you want us to leave? And what are you going to do if we don't leave? Several people in the group immediately began complaining of headaches and stomach pain. I was met with responses like, yes, and harm. We began hearing noises from the kitchen where we moved to conduct another session, and the room became drastically hot, hot for a January in New York City. And I raised my hands in prayer and began to close my eyes. As I prayed, a member of the group told me my hands were being pulled apart by nothing. As I opened my eyes, I became disoriented and my vision blurred, and I heard several people in the group saying something was coming up the stairs from the basement. I got up and noticed a horned shadow creeping up the steps. I yelled at it, do your worst, I'm not afraid. 
I woke up on the floor a full five minutes later. I managed to get out of the house, just to be told I smelled like ashes and fire. I got home to notice what appeared to be a handprint on my ankle, and it was hot to the touch and extremely painful. I had gone to church and explained what happened, and the priest offered to anoint the mark with holy water, and when it came into contact with my skin, it felt like I was being set on fire. For several weeks after, myself and one member of the group began to have dreams of being threatened and taunted by a man in a black suit. My grandfather built a house for him and his first wife. Sadly, she died falling down the basement stairs. Later, he met my grandmother and they had my mother. Years later, my grandfather passed away, leaving my grandmother alone in the house. A friend of hers had stopped by to see if she would sell the house. She gave them a tour and afterwards, her friend handed her his card. The minute her hand touched the card, a loud crash came from upstairs. For reference, the upstairs is laid out like a square hallway that loops around a pillar and on the back of that pillar is a bookcase. The shelves on that bookcase had collapsed inward, like someone had slammed down on them. Books were found in every room upstairs, behind beds, in closets, and even in rooms on the other side of the pillar. My grandma never really believed in ghosts, but this event freaked her out. So this has happened to me more than once in the house where my family used to live. From what I was told, there was a ghost in the house that resembled me, so much to the point where my own mother thought it was me. The first incident was back in 2011-2012. I was in my bedroom, and I heard my name being called, so when I responded from upstairs, I heard my mom say, never mind, very nervously. Naturally, I go down the stairs and I ask my mom why she was calling me. She then said, I just saw you standing in the kitchen. I looked at her and said, I've been upstairs the whole night. And she replied with, I saw you go into the kitchen and open the cupboard. The next incident was with a family friend named Jamie. The layout of our house was kind of odd. There was a hallway that connected to the kitchen, but it had two openings, so it created this weird open wall situation. Anyway, there was a mirror hanging on the wall, and you could see the reflection of the TV in the mirror. So one day, I went to an amusement park, and Jamie looked at the mirror, then circled around the hallway situation, and asked the other person at the house if I was still there. When she replied, no, she left, Jamie said she saw me sitting on the couch from the reflection of the TV. The TV was not on. The last incident was with my cousin. He had spent the night, and we both fell asleep on the couches downstairs in the living room. He had woken up and went upstairs to brush his teeth in the bathroom. It had one of those giant mirrors that covered the entire wall from the counter up. And with the bathroom door open, you could see into my room and my brother's room. He said he was brushing his teeth, and when he looked up at the mirror, he saw me standing from my bedroom watching him brush his teeth and said, Oh, I didn't know you were awake, Cass. He didn't get a response. Once again, I was asleep downstairs in the living room. The next thing I knew, my cousin was shaking me, telling me to wake up and that he had just saw me standing in my bedroom. We lived there for about nine years. My room was always the coldest room in the house, especially the closet in my room. It was freezing in there, and we were told it was a portal. I always heard hangers moving around and I would feel someone or something sitting at the edge of my bed. In the basement, especially if you were alone, you could hear footsteps constantly. I never felt too scared or threatened, but the idea of a ghost looking at me creeped me out. I live in a house that was built in the early 1900s. When it was built, it was intended to be used by a doctor performing checkups and work in his own home. One room at the front of the house freaks out nearly every visitor who comes by, and my friends growing up always described a strange feeling when walking past the room. Some even run past to avoid it. The house consists of a long hallway where you have to walk past every room before reaching an open space, something that I've been told has been quite claustrophobic and has scared some of my friends who used to visit often. Back in 2015, my then-girlfriend explained that she was seeing snakes in one corner of the room and a snarling dog in the other. This was all during the middle of the night. I had experienced what I thought were hallucinations of a lost child and a strange man that I assumed was one of my mother's friends. When I asked who it was, she said there had been no one matching the description who had entered the house. During the night when leaving my room for a drink or to go to the toilet, I never felt alone. I felt like something was there, but not acting out. Now as an adult, 
I walk into that front room and still feel cold in a sensation that I can only describe as emptiness. To this day, I wonder what kind of patience the original owner had, and if any of them died on the property. I was lying on my bed watching videos on the internet when I thought I heard a knock at my door. I took out my headphones and listened for another knock. I didn't hear anything, so I put my headphones back in and continued watching the video. Shortly after, my video started buffering at exactly 6 minutes and 66 seconds, and I felt someone tug at my foot, which was hanging off my bed. I quickly got up and looked under my bed and around my room to see if my sister was playing a trick on me. I was alone. I ran out of my room and saw a tall, dark figure standing at the end of the hallway. I closed my eyes, and when I opened them again, it was gone. When I was about 9 years old, I had a friend that introduced me to the urban legend of Bloody Mary. We used to play around and dare each other to summon her in the bathroom one at a time. One night, I was feeling daring, so I went into the bathroom and did it, except I ran out before I could see anything, and I went to sleep. I woke up around 4am and heard footsteps coming up the stairs. At first, I thought it was probably my parents, except I began realizing that the footsteps never seemed to make it to the top. Then I thought, oh, the tooth fairy. Remember, I was 9. I had lost my tooth that night, except I looked under my pillow, and it was gone. The steps started getting louder, faster, and closer, and sounded as if someone had already gotten to the top of the staircase. But I went to check. Nobody was there, and both my parents were asleep. I got so scared that I pulled the covers over my head, and the steps suddenly came to a halt. I slowly uncovered my face, let out a sigh of relief, and went to turn my body towards the wall, when I felt a hand crawl down my forearm and bang it against the wall with full force. I had zero control over my arm, which is what freaked me out. When I woke up, there was a dent in the wall. About four years ago, I was home alone with my newly three-year-old daughter. My husband was working late, so I knew I was in charge of bedtime. I didn't like being alone at home because I always had this off feeling like someone was watching us and my mom was always superstitious. My daughter and I went through our routine and when it was time to put on her pajamas, she told me that she had a friend who would stay with her when we put her to bed. So I asked her who it was and she looked at me and said, well, can't you see him, mommy? He's standing right behind you in my closet. He's very big, how can you miss him? We moved less than a year later. We had just moved to the suburbs from the south side of Chicago, so naturally my family and I were slightly uneasy in a totally new environment. My younger brother, however, was a nervous wreck. He refused to go into the basement or even the stairs leading down to them. No big deal, he was around five or six at the time, so we chalked it up to the typical kids scared of basement rhetoric. But things did get weird pretty quick. Apparently, I started sleepwalking, something I never did before we moved, and I would stand outside my parents' door in the middle of the night. I would do this a few times a week, even standing right next to my parents' bed, and just stare. My mom would always tell me to go back to bed, and according to her, I even tried to leave the house. I was around 10 or 11. One night, we were eating dinner, and my little brother just loses it, sobbing hysterically and pointing at the door that, you guessed it, opens up to the staircase that leads to the basement. My parents are super concerned, asking him what's wrong, but all he can manage to string together is, it's staring at me, it's staring at me. A little time passes, and nothing really happens. Things seem to have really calmed down. It was the middle of winter, which is when my birthday is, I was hanging out in my room and I heard someone singing happy birthday. Weird, because it wasn't my birthday just yet. So I went into the kitchen, expecting to see my parents with a cake. No one was there. I thought that maybe I was just hearing things. I went back into my room and I heard it again. I started looking around and I finally found the source of the noise. It was coming from the vents. The vents that all lead to the basement. The last straw for my parents was probably when we couldn't find my younger brother. We looked all over the house. No sign of him. We were all freaking out. Eventually, we would faintly hear someone crying through the vents. He was in the basement. 
My mom wouldn't let me go into the basement with her, so this is what she told me happened. She said that when she ran down there, she saw a dark shadow, and that it was shaped like a man. Now, my mom is your regular religious immigrant parent. She didn't allow us to bring anything regarding death or the supernatural into the house, because according to her, it would be inviting it into our home. So of course, this freaked her out. She said that she repeatedly told whatever it was to get out and leave her family alone. Apparently, it disappeared after a few moments, and she found my brother. After that, she hung up a few crosses all over the house, and a Virgin de Guadalupe statue. Nothing weird happened since, but we still ended up moving. Moral of the story, don't move to the suburbs. Hi, I'm Faith. This is the story of the disembodied voice. Don't turn out the lights. It was a hot spring night in Florida. Chrissy had just gotten home from school and settled down to do her homework in her old wooden house. It had been in the family for over a hundred years and it creaked and groaned as the winds blew. To Chrissy, they were the familiar sounds of a house full of love, one that never used to be silent. She fondly remembered her grandmother cooking, bashing pots and pans in the kitchen. She'd yell, Chrissy Lou, the nickname she'd given her when dinner was ready. But the house was quiet after school now. Chrissy settled in her room and began her homework, waiting for her mom to get back home. Her dog sat beside her. Chrissy had just finished her first math problem when she heard the door slam downstairs. Mom must be home early. Chrissy called down to her. Mom? There was no response. Probably just the wind, she thought. She shrugged it off and continued her homework. An hour passed. She'd almost finished her first assignment when she faintly heard the sounds of pots and pans clanging downstairs. She hadn't heard Mom come in the door. Chrissy Lou, a voice called from downstairs. One second. Chrissy responded, finishing up her final math problem. Chrissy Lou, the voice called again. Chrissy closed her books and walked downstairs, calling her dog to follow. But he wouldn't budge. She shrugged it off and walked downstairs and into the kitchen. No one was there, but what she saw sent a chill down her spine. Every pot and pan in the house had been stacked neatly in the middle of the room. Cabinets lay open and empty. The side door flew open beside her. In the doorway stood Chrissy's mom, groceries in hand. But if she was only just getting home, who laid out the pots and pans? Mom looked around at the scattered pots and pans, confused. You helping me cook tonight, Chrissy Lou? I didn't do this, replied Chrissy as she and her mom looked around the kitchen. Then who did? asked her mom. Chrissy Lou did it ready. Chrissy Lou. I'm Faith, and this is the story of the woman in the well. Don't turn out the lights. Each year, Rachel's mother would drop her off at her grandma's house for their yearly visit. Grandma lived down a long dirt road, miles from neighbors, tucked away in a beautiful forest. At night, 
Rachel would take Grandma's dog Harry out for a long walk in the woods. As she clipped on Harry's leash and stepped outside to begin their walk, Rachel's phone buzzed. It surprised her. She didn't usually have service so far away from town. An unknown number had sent her a text. Come to the well, it read. She tried to respond and ask who it was, but a message wouldn't go through. She shrugged it off. It was probably a wrong number anyway. Harry pulled her along the dirt road, picking up a scent. She allowed him to lead her as she looked up at the beautiful moon through the trees. Suddenly, Harry stopped. He began growling at what was in front of him. Looking around, Rachel realized she was in unfamiliar territory. She'd never walked this way before. She strained her eyes to see what Harry was barking at up ahead. There stood a large stone well in the middle of the pathway. She'd never seen it before. Curious, she crept toward the well with her cell phone flashlight and peered down to the bottom. But the well had dried up. All she could see was a bit of wet dirt and darkness. Hello! She called down playfully, listening to the echo bouncing back at her in the blackness. Her cell phone buzzed again. It was another text, but this time it was a picture of her. She jumped back in shock, tripping over a tree root, her phone flying in the air and shattering down beside her. She and Harry ran back toward the house. Her grandma tried to calm her. The well was old and dried up, she explained. In fact, it was odd she stumbled across it tonight. Contractors were coming tomorrow to cement it over. Rachel tried to show her grandma the picture she'd been sent, but it had disappeared. Her grandma made her some tea and Rachel fell asleep on the couch. Early in the morning, she was awoken by the sound of a cement truck backing up and her cell phone ringing incessantly. Half asleep, Rachel picked up her shattered phone and held it to her ear. Hello? She answered. Come to the well, said a voice on the other line. They're burying me. Rachel leapt up and ran as fast as she could, but she was too late. The cement truck was driving away, and a pile of gravel lay where the well had been. Hurriedly, she picked up her phone and dialed back the number. It rang. Then she heard a ringing on the other line. The ringtone emanated from the ground, deep, deep below her, buried in the darkness. Until the ringing stopped. I'm Faith, and this is the story of the maid in Suite 23. Don't turn out the lights. Zack and his mother could barely see the road ahead as they drove home from their family holiday. They couldn't see more than a foot in front of their car as the snow fell down like sheets on the window shield. Tired and scared, they breathed a sigh of relief when they saw a sign up ahead for a place to wait out the storm. The Inn at Mudford. They'd spend the night and finish the drive in the morning when the storm had passed. The old inn smelled like moist wood mothballs and felt eerily empty. They were greeted by an old innkeeper. He informed them excitedly that they were his only guest, and so he gave them his favorite suite to stay in. He led them to suite 23. He showed them the first room. It was large and luxurious with a king bed and large windows. Then he showed them down the hall to the second room, where Zach would stay. It was smaller with a twin bed. Back when people used to travel with staff, the innkeeper explained, this is where the maid would sleep. Once he was done with his tour, the innkeeper bid them good night and left the room. Zack got ready for bed. That night, Zack was awoken by a faint knock on the door. Turn down service, a voice faintly called from beyond the closed door. No thank you, responded Zack. But then he heard the knock a second time. 
Zack stood up frustrated. What kind of maid visited in the middle of the night? He opened the door, but no one was there. Perhaps he was dreaming, he thought. He closed the door, locked it, and got back into bed. But something strange happened to Zack as he slept. When he awoke, all his clothes were neatly folded and put away. His bed was made around him, and his hair was carefully combed. He gathered his things and went to the front desk. Mom was already in the middle of checking out, clearly losing patience with the old innkeeper as he filled out his paperwork by hand. She went to get the car as Zack waited with the bags. The innkeeper silently stood behind the desk watching Zack as he stared out the window. The innkeeper thanks Zack for his stay. It can get quiet around here with just me and the maid who died 200 years ago. A chill went down his spine. Zack hurried his bags outside. The maid couldn't be 200 years old. That was impossible. He googled the inn at Mudford trying to find answers. Headline after headline popped up. The maid who haunts the Mudford Inn. Mudford Inn, the most haunted inn. Suddenly, Zack knew who knocked on his door. He knew who kept the innkeeper company. And he knew who tidied up his room in the middle of the night. It was the maid in Suite 23, who died 200 years ago. This is the story of the traveling doll maker. Don't turn out the lights. The story took place in a very small village a long, long time ago. Little William walked to school along a familiar road when one day, he passed something strange. In an open field that had long remained empty stood a traveling doll maker's caravan. The caravan was breathtaking, displaying realistic, lifelike, beautiful little boy and girl dolls arranged neatly in colorful rows. William stopped and stared at the dolls, mesmerized, when the doll maker stepped out from behind his dolls. Do you like my creations? asked the doll maker. They're beautiful, responded William, unable to look away. Will you make me one? No, said the doll maker. They're far too valuable. William pleaded and pleaded with the doll maker. He'd said he'd steal. He'd sell all his possessions. He'd do anything if only the doll maker would just make him a beautiful doll. Finally, the doll maker responded. All right, but each of these dolls is based off of someone I know. They're my greatest joy. If I were to make one for you, you'd have to give me a gift that's equally as valuable in return. Anything! The doll maker smiled wide. Bring me back the most valuable thing in your home, and I'll make you a doll. I don't have anything of value, but my father might. I'll make you a deal then, said the doll maker. Tomorrow morning, bring me your father's greatest joy, and I'll make you a doll. They shook hands. That evening, William ran home after school. He searched his father's office for the perfect thing to bring back to the doll maker, but he was scared his father might notice if something too valuable went missing, so he looked for something he could fool the doll maker with. He found a golden painted rock on the bookshelf. His father would probably never notice it was missing, and the doll maker would never know it wasn't his father's greatest joy. Proud of himself for his clever trick, William walked back to the doll maker in the morning. He handed him the rock with anticipation. This is not your father's most prized possession, said the doll maker, throwing the rock to the ground. I do not like liars. If you want me to make you a doll, 
Come back with your father's greatest joy. That night, while his father was at work, William searched high and low for the most expensive thing he could find. He opened the safe to find solid gold cufflinks. He surmised they must be worth a fortune. Surely the doll maker would want these. The next day, he returned to the doll maker with cufflinks in hand. Is this what you believe to be your father's greatest joy? asked the doll maker. Yes, said William. The doll maker examined the cufflinks. I still don't believe you, he said. And now I'm growing angry. I leave in the morning. This is your last chance. Tomorrow you will bring me your father's greatest joy, if you want me to make you a doll. Growing desperate, William ran home with his cufflinks as the sun went down, hoping to find what the doll maker required. He burst into his father's office to find him home from work, toiling away at his desk. Where were you, son? asked his father, smiling. I was worried. What would I do if something happened to you? A chill went down William's spine when he realized what he just heard. You see, his father's greatest joy was him, and he couldn't very well give himself to the doll maker. He resolved to go back to the shop in the morning and tell the doll maker the deal was off. The doll maker was packing up the shop as William approached. I'm sorry, said William, as he looked one last time at the beautiful dolls. I cannot give you my father's greatest joy, after all, because my father's greatest joy is me. Oh, but you can said the doll maker. His face turned hard as stone. That's how I make all my dolls. William's blood went cold when he looked at the dolls again, finally seeing them clearly. Every doll had realistic, terrified eyes like children trapped, frozen and scared. He tried to turn and run, but his body stiffened. It was too late. The doll maker had his new doll and William's father lost his greatest joy. The caravan traveled down the road to a new town, this time carrying William, just another doll on a shelf. Don't turn out the lights. Ever since Sarah was young, she always had a power she kept secret. Whatever she drew came true. Every day she'd play with her best friend Elizabeth. They play on magical creations that came straight from Sarah's imagination. But as the girls got older, they grew apart. Sarah threw herself deeper into painting while Elizabeth played sports and started hanging out with her friend Jessica more often. However, the two still maintained a tradition of meeting up in front of school and walking home together. Until one day. Sarah waited outside for Elizabeth. And Elizabeth never came. And then it happened again the next day. After days and days of Elizabeth not showing up, Sarah confronted her at school. Why won't you walk home with me? She asked. I walk home with Jessica now. It's no big deal. Sometimes things change. Sarah cursed at Elizabeth and screamed hateful things. Heartbroken, she ran home. She grabbed an old drawing of the two of them and tore it in half. The next day at school, when Sarah went to apologize to Elizabeth, Elizabeth didn't recognize her. She simply looked at her with a blank stare. Later that day, she noticed Jessica whispering something in Elizabeth's ear, as though they were talking about her. She became enraged again. That night, she taped the drawing back together so Elizabeth would remember who she was. But then she made another drawing. Clearly, Jessica was poisoning Elizabeth's mind, and she had to be stopped. Jessica didn't come to school the next day. Elizabeth remembered Sarah again, and without Jessica in the picture, the two met up in front of the school and walked home together once again. They hung out like old times in Sarah's room. 
Sarah was ecstatic to have her old friend back. But when she went downstairs to get lemonade, Elizabeth discovered Sarah's drawings. As she flipped through the drawings on Sarah's desk, her life flashed before her. She saw drawings of their childhood, meeting up to walk home after school, a ripped photo taped back together. But it was when she saw the last drawing that her blood ran cold. She ran out of Sarah's house and down the street to Jessica's house where she sprinted upstairs. She walked into Jessica's room and there she saw her. Jessica was lying in bed with no mouth. It was the last drawing she had seen on Sarah's desk. When Sarah came back with lemonade for Elizabeth, she panicked. Her drawings were strewn about and Elizabeth was gone. She knew that Elizabeth would never forgive her and she couldn't live with the despair of knowing that her best friend hated her. Then and there she ripped up every drawing she'd made, erasing herself from Elizabeth's memory for life and putting Jessica back to normal. She went to school the next day, a stranger to her best friend, and she never drew again. This is the story of the scratches in the closet. Don't turn out the lights. It was the dead of night. The house was quiet as Stacy lay asleep down the hall from her parents. Suddenly, she awoke to the sound of something in her closet. She mustered up all her courage and slinked out of bed and down the hall, breaking into a run to get to her parents' room as quickly as she could. Groggy, her father followed her toward the closet to investigate the noise. The two of them slowly opened the closet door, but nothing was there. Stacy slept peacefully the next few nights until she was woken up again. This time, the sound was different. From behind the door, she heard a rhythmic scratching like someone carving into wood. The door opened just slightly, and through the crack, she saw two red, glowing eyes. The scratching continued. Scared she'd be seen, she lay still, pretending to be asleep until the morning. When the sun was up, the noise was gone. She grabbed her dad to check the closet. On the inside of the door was lettering, in a strange kind of language she couldn't understand scratched into the wood. Stacy's dad was shaken. He installed security cameras all over the house. They locked up all the doors. They closed every window. Nothing would get in or out without them knowing. Stacy slept soundly that night until she heard the scratching again. Unable to stay put, she bolted. The family fled outside and called the police. The cops searched the whole house. Then they reached Stacy's room. In the back of the closet, they discovered a hole. It was scratched through the wall and led to nowhere. It was dark and cavernous and deep. Where did it lead? What beast had made it? Would it come back? Stacy's dad had the hole boarded up and covered with cement, ensuring that nothing would come in or out again. But Stacy never slept the same again. If the thing found its way in once, couldn't it find its way in again? Hi, I'm Faith. This is the story of the principal. Don't turn out the lights. As Gretchen sat with the other freshmen on their first day of high school, she could tell something about Middle High High was different. But what Gretchen noticed the most was how strangely well-behaved the students were. 
They were smiling and polite and almost too calm. Compared to the upperclassmen, the freshmen were unkempt, loud, and even a bit rowdy. Principal Richards welcomed them, and after a speech about how excellence is expected at Middle Heights High, he led the student body in singing the fight song. Middle Heights High forever, in unison we learn together. We're all bound for life, secrets safe and held so tight. Very quickly, Gretchen noticed that her classmates started to change. One by one, they began to adopt the smiling, polite, eerily calm demeanor of the upperclassmen. The hallways got quieter as students walked silently from room to room. Gretchen found herself appreciating the last few rambunctious and loud classmates she had left, like Chad Thomas. But that ended one day during first period, when Chad made a joke during Mrs. Woodrow's class and she sent him straight to detention. When he came back, he wasn't the same. Suddenly, he seemed like everyone else. His hair, usually messy, was perfectly combed. His jacket was clean. He had on a rigid smile and his eyes were blank. Something was happening in detention that was making the students change. As the days went on, Gretchen struggled to fit in. While she worked diligently in Mrs. Woodrow's class, she felt her classmates staring at her, suspicious of how she didn't fit in. As she felt their eyes on her, she got more and more nervous, and she dropped her pen on the floor. Mrs. Woodrow immediately spun around with glee, maniacally smiling in a way Gretchen had never seen before. It was like she'd been waiting for Gretchen to mess up. Detention! She screamed. Terrified, Gretchen grabbed her things and walked out of class. But as Gretchen passed Chad's desk, he reached out and grabbed her hand. Don't go, he mouthed. She walked into the hallway and slowly toward the exit, ready to book it when she got outside those school doors. Suddenly, Principal Richards appeared in the hallway, blocking her way out and motioning her toward the detention room. There was no getting out of it. Welcome to detention, Principal Richards said as he pressed play on a TV at the front of the room. She stared at the door, trying to figure out if she could make a run for it, when she found her eyes being drawn toward the screen. There were flashing lights, beautiful music, and she watched the whole thing. After that day, Gretchen fit in just fine. Hi, I'm Faith. This is the story of the wandering woman. Don't turn out the lights. Brother and sister Mark and Jess walked down the street on their way home from school. The two were so engrossed in talking about their day that they didn't notice the old woman standing in the sidewalk up ahead, staring right at them. Hello, she said, startling them. I don't mean to alarm you, she went on. I'm simply looking for the library. I need to return my book and I can't seem to find where to go. Something about the woman made the hair stand up on the back of their necks. She was quiet and small. She wasn't scary, but something wasn't right. The library's back the way you came, just down the road, around the corner and to the right. Darn it, she said frustrated. She'd have to go back the way she came. As she got upset, Mark and Jess felt the air around them grow colder. Jess offered to help. We're going that way. How about I bring your book to the library? 
The woman smiled widely. Thank you so much. That would help me a lot. She handed Jess the book. It was hot to the touch. The woman thanked them and they parted ways. Feel the book, said Jess to Mark. It's burning up. He turned around to see if the old woman was still there, but somehow she was already gone. They picked up their pace and headed toward the library, ready to return the book and get home. But when they rounded the corner, they saw it. Where the library had been was a smoking pile of ash. Pieces of singed paper fell down around them. Mark caught one. At the top of the page, he read the title, Stranded. Then he read the title of the book, Stranded. enjoying the show um this is the end of it however for tonight um we have opened a patreon account if you would like to support either of my podcasts thanks for listening to the jaded nation network um also if you would like any kind of advertising at the end of my shows um i can do advertising for you for a small We will catch you next Tuesday, if you dare to listen.